Really kind of diving deep into educational research that has to do with diversity, equity, and inclusion, and how do we help our colleges do better. From the Texas Veterinary Medical Association in Austin, Texas, this is Veterinary Vitals, a show that features open and honest conversations with veterinary professionals. I'm your host, Dina Goldstein, Media Coordinator for TVMA. Back in August, I spoke with Dr. Lisa Greenhill. She's the Senior Director of Institutional Research and Diversity at the Association of American Veterinary Medical Colleges, AAVMC for short. If you listen to the episode titled Being a Veterinarian of Color with Dr. Nicole Bruno, which aired in June, you may find Dr. Lisa Greenhill's name and title familiar. She collects data on veterinary colleges in the U.S. and beyond. Her reports provide information on veterinary college tuition and diversity among faculty, applicants, and student enrollment. This includes data related to gender, race, ethnicity, and sexual orientation. Her research resulted in this statistic. 21.1% of students enrolled in the 2019-2020 academic year are comprised of those underrepresented in veterinary medicine. Just five years ago, that number was 14.6%. I leaned on this data to provide context to Dr. Hindatu Mohammed's episode, She's Black, Dr. Bruno's episode, She's Afro-Latina, as well as Dr. Victor Lopez's, He is Latino, and his episode is titled Achieving the American Dream, and it aired in August. If you haven't listened to those episodes, I recommend tuning in. Well, after emailing Dr. Greenhill about this public data and listening to her on AAVMC's podcast, Diversity and Inclusion On Air, Conversations About Diversity, Inclusion, and Veterinary Medicine, I thought it would be worth it to dig deeper and understand her work a bit more and how it advances diversity in veterinary colleges and ultimately the profession. A major part of her role is promoting veterinary medicine within marginalized and underrepresented communities and overseeing the development and implementation of the Diversity Matters initiative at the national and local levels. I'll let her explain. Here she is. Diversity Matters um, is kind of the name that oversees all of our diversity, kind of core diversity programming, right? And so when we create new programs, it's really under that heading. Um, And so over the years, we've done a lot of, of, of different kinds of programs, certainly things like the podcast that I host, Diversity and Inclusion on Air, is a part of um, the, the Diversity Matters Initiative, um, Holistic Admissions Review and Review, where we uh, assist institutions on um, learning new ways of evaluating applicants in a holistic way that doesn't just reduce them to kind of flat numbers, but really kind of thinks about them and what they will contribute to the profession, not how good of a student they will be. And so um, rather than making that an admissions program, it really has a diversity focus. And so um, and so we have had that under the, um, the, the heading of the initiative. Um, 
but then a lot of my my work, even the the internal research that we do um, on applicants, we do have a whole portfolio of research where we study um, the experiences of applicants um, through the process of applying, but also through um, all the way through, you know, whether they get a letter, an offer letter or not. Um, all of that is really not only to understand generally what's happening with applicants, but very specifically what's happening with um, uh, folks from underrepresented backgrounds of all kinds, right? So that would include not just race and, and gender, but also um, our rural applicants versus our urban applicants. Both of them are underrepresented in um, in the applicant pool, our first generation applicants, our applicants from low income backgrounds and kind of understanding um, um, if there are barriers, what are those barriers so that we can actually find solutions um, to those issues. So all of those things are kind of um, lumped together and, um, and I oversee those projects um, as a part of advancing um, you know, diversity in the profession. So I do a lot of, um, I certainly do a lot of lecturing, I do a lot of talks, I give a lot of presentations, all of those kinds of things in addition um, to um, some of the more uh, kind of in-house work, I guess, that we do. And so uh, we will be launching a new program under the Diversity Matters Initiative in September, Carl Dark Community Reads Program, where we're gonna be focusing on reading um, academic books about diversity and inclusion. Because I think that um, a lot of times and a lot of folks think that this is all about just kind of the social justice, moral um, imperative around diversity and inclusion rather than diversity being a discipline, an academic discipline, um, where folks like me spend a lot of time thinking and studying <laughs> this stuff. Yeah. Um, and so really kind of diving deep into um, educational research that has to do with diversity, equity, and inclusion, and how do we help our colleges do better? Wow. Not just in terms of structural representation, but in terms of curriculum and hidden climate and, and um, you know, and all kinds of different experiences that not just students have, but faculty as well. And so um, you mentioned understanding if there are barriers for applicants, and so I wanted to talk about that. Um, so what have you noticed that have been some of those barriers that have fueled the trend for so few students of color? Yeah, and it's, you know, it's not just about the students of color, but again, students from low-income backgrounds um, and first-generation uh, applicants, rural applicants, and a lot of times there's a lot of overlap in these populations, right? So some of the things that we've noticed um, are, well, found in the research are things like, um, you know, racially underrepresented uh, applicants are certainly overrepresented in the low income, lower, lower income stratas, which makes their profiles look a little bit different in terms of, you know, the, a lot of the colleges require experiential hours. Um, what, what we'll end up seeing is they have a lot more experiential hours. People think that they might have lower numbers, um, but they actually have higher numbers. But the reason why they have higher numbers is because they're ten, they tend to be going to school part-time and working in clinics full-time. Um, now, how is this a barrier? 
right? Because they're getting veterinary experience and they're still going to school. Well, in the application process, um, you know, one of those questions are, uh, that uh, admissions committees may ask are, are things like, can this person bear the weight of the full DVM curriculum? Like, can they be in class that long? Or can they really handle this level of work? Um, and, and so they'll look at the application and say, oh, but they only went to college part-time. So maybe they can't handle it. Rather than thinking, um, they went to college part-time while they were working full-time and still did well, right? Thinking that that is a different kind of demonstration of being able to handle a lot of, you know, kind of work and academic stress. Um, so that's, that's one example. Another example um, that we found is that even though folks bemoan the, um, the, the small numbers of men, which we're also concerned about, we want to see those numbers increase, the small, the small number of men that apply to veterinary school, men are still statistically more likely to be admitted than their women counterparts. And so, um, so yes, we are absolutely concerned about their numbers, but please don't think that they're disadvantaged in this process, <laughs> right? Yeah. Don't think that they're disadvantaged in this process. Um, the, the data is very clear that they get stronger mentoring, they get more hours, they get more hours in, they get more um, direct contact and mentoring from veterinarians than the 80% of women that are applying and admitted. And so, um, and so they have uh, still a much greater likelihood of being admitted despite their, fall, their small numbers. Yeah. So those are things that we have to kind of really think about. Um, how do we feel about that? And what does that mean for, um, for example, maybe women of color um, who might be, you know, kind of at the other end of the, the kind of, you know, demographic spectrum um, there's gender, there's race, and, and there may be some other kind of potential things that, that we find barriers from. The, it gives us some context on kind of what those experiences are like so that we can identify some of these um, kind of nuanced ways of how can we look at applications differently so that we see the value of this person and what they can contribute to the profession again rather than will they just be a great student yes we think that they can be great students but but beyond that let's look beyond that so it's instead of looking at people in a two-dimensional way kind of bringing them up to three-dimensional like this is a whole person <laughs> yes yes these are whole real people behind the the papers the essays the questions the scores um, the grades, there's a, a being, um, you know, tethered to that stuff. And, yeah. and how do we look at that person, excuse me, how do we look at that person and how do we assess like what they can bring to the profession? Yeah. And so I noticed that, so, you know, you have this public data set, which has been so uh, helpful for me when I've done these podcast episodes where I can look back and help um, provide some context for a person of color who's, you know, who says, hey, I feel like I'm one of few in the room. And then I can look and look at data and be like, okay, this, this actually illustrates that her, her or his um, experience is backed by this data. So I have really appreciated that information. And, and so something that I saw is that 
student enrollment among non-white students from 2010 to 2020 has gone from like 11% to 20%. Now I have to say that probably has to do with you. <laughs> right? I cannot take all the credit on that. Okay. This is really the work of the, the schools. Um, and I think that certainly some of the, the work that we do at AAVMC has absolutely influence that. So the, so there's a couple of things that I think have played a, a big role. One, increasing the pipeline of applicants, right? So the number, um, the relative percentage of um, applicants who come from underrepresented backgrounds has increased um, over the last decade. Um, uh, the numbers are still small, but they've definitely increased, right? The other thing is that we are seeing more schools implement um, different ways of evaluating applicants and more holistic um, approaches, right? And so we're seeing things like the the the, rep, the research is showing things like uh, the GRE is not necessarily predictive of performance. Um, the GRE can be a huge barrier for low-income students, for um, applicants of color. I mean, there are some inherent biases that are well known to um, standardized tests. And, and so the cost of them also can be pretty, pretty a, a barrier by itself. I mean, one test is $150 and a lot of folks want to take prep and that can go into the thousands of dollars. I mean, it can, can escalate pretty quickly. And then, you know, sending scores to institutions can also be another added cost. So we're removing that barrier, recognizing that it's not really adding anything anyway, um, creates more access um, and makes folks certainly more comfortable thinking about applying. Um, and so those are two things. The other thing is that I think that, um, you know, this is the, the, the colleges, we don't make them do anything. That's not the type of organization that we are, but we do have a lot of shared values. And I think that there are folks that really are doing some incredible work out on the ground at the local level in terms of recruiting, in terms of thinking about admissions in a really different way, as well as thinking about what should the student experience look like. Getting back to your, your comment about the public data and kind of being the lonely only in a classroom, a lot of what we want and think about from a well-being perspective is connection. We want connection. And absolutely, you can have cross-racial connection. Of course, the big connection and the shared interest and shared value is we all want to be veterinarians, right? But um, there are nuances. And sometimes you just need a space. You need folks that kind of share some other kinds of life experience that you want to just be able to kick back and spend time, share space with. And, uh, you know, some folks are not able to do that. So we've seen colleges pay more attention to institutional climate and what that is like. And, and when students are in healthier climates and feel supported, they are going to be some of your best recruiters. So we see those numbers go up. So what's interesting, you know, you're focusing on um, improving the admissions process. And, you know, we're coming from the association sphere. You know, I think at this point, we're looking into creating a more inclusive and diverse association. Do you know what other associations are doing um, or any ideas of, of what associations can do? 
Sure. So I can tell you some of the things that we do at uh, AAVMC. Um, so we, and, and part of it is really organizations have to go through their policies and procedures and the way that they do things and, and really interrogate why things are the way they are and how can they change them, right? So, so things like we have, we now have a code of conduct um, for our meetings, um, you know, sometimes we might have to ask people to leave <laughs> because of, you know, things that, that are just not consistent with our values. Um, we have um, uh, assessment tools um, uh, institutional assessment tool, organizational assessment tool um, that really helps our organization and other organizations really kind of sit down and think about how does their, um, you know, core values, how do they manifest in the association environment? So how do people ascend to leadership? Are there hidden pathways? So, and by hidden pathways, I mean, well, you know, you know that if you uh, serve on this committee and then you serve on that committee, you serve like this many years, then you will probably be able to get on the governance committee and then you might go to the board and then you might be in line for the presidency, right? That's not necessarily outlined in a book, but that's how, air quote, everyone knows it works, right? That is a hidden pathway but it's also kind of a locked pathway because everybody can't take that pathway. Right. Right. And so it's not open to folks. It's not necessarily clear that that's what the goal is. Right. And so um, hidden pathways. Um, we also look at things like um, imagery in our communications and what does that look like that has required us to solicit more diverse pictures from our member institutions to use in our publication, but it also means that we might subscribe to more than iStock photo. We need to um, subscribe to several different, um, you know, stock photo subscriptions so that we have a bigger pool of diverse images to take a look at. It means that um, maybe we are putting out statements on things that are in line or opposed to our values. A number of certainly organizations um, have wrestled in the last couple of months kind of trying to understand how to react and respond to things like the Black Lives Matter movement or the, inc the recent incident um, with Representative Ted Yoho and a Representative um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. And what does that mean um, from a diversity perspective? Um, and being willing to plant your flag, these are our values and we are gonna try to be consistent with them. We also have a, a meeting assessment tool. Um, these tools are available on our website for how we think about um, being inclusive at a meeting. We were really kind of struggling with issues around do we want to host meetings in states that don't have non-discrimination -disc um, laws on the books. Um, but we found that that might really be uh, a hindrance to those institutions um, in states without um, such legislation or, you know, such a legal framework. So rather than to penalize, we make it very clear that these are what our expectations for a meeting with an AAVMC name attached to it. These are, this is what we expect. We expect that there's going to be um, at least, you know, one easily accessible, um, you know, uh, um, all gender bathroom. 
that's that's one of our expectations, right? We're um, really concerned about um, uh, scents and smells for folks that may have chemical sens um, uh, sensitivities. Priority seating for folks that might need that because they need, you know, sign language interpreter or they need to they hear better or whatever it is. So we have these these kinds of documents that um, really help us live our values as an association. And so those are some of the types of things that organizations can and we believe should think about implementing so that they really can if these are if we're saying that these are core values the only way that we can prove that is to live it right right yeah i mean you can say something but if you're not doing anything then it's an empty statement yeah yeah and i either heard you say this in one of your podcasts or it was the my veterinary life podcast and i love this question which is what does allyship look like in veterinary medicine yeah so so what does allyship look like allyship um requires for me it requires that um those folks who share these kind of core values are willing to put skin in the game it means that they um acknowledge that they have a lot to learn, but they're supportive. They don't expect emotional um, labor or support from the folks that they're supposed to be an ally to. Um, they recognize that um, the allies, whatever group they're being an ally to, that as an ally, one thing that we have to be mindful of is that as allies, have to acknowledge that they are a part of the systemic issue that is being fought, right? So as, um, so, so for me, as an ally to LGBT folks, recognizing that I am a straight cis woman means that I recognize the role and ways that I contribute to heteronormativity um, and, um, you know, cis, well, the cis kind of het normativity, like that there's, that gender is only a binary or um, that we only think of, you know, when we talk about marriage, we don't necessarily think of it as, um, you know, same-sex partnerships and marriages and those types of things. And so recognizing <clears throat> for me as, as in my allyship that I uphold that stuff and that it is my responsibility to figure out how not to. <laughs> right. Right, and to, to try to elevate the voices and the work of my, my colleagues and those folks that really are doing amazing work in trying to um, seek liberation from oppression. And so the first step is acknowledging it, realizing that if you're not in that minority that, you know, you're probably part of what you were saying. Um, allowing this system to continue going as is and you know with acknowledging it I know that from from your podcast episode about there's this fear about talking about race you know people are afraid that hey if I say it like this then people are going to get upset so what would you say to some you know someone like me if I'm like hey I'm, I'm afraid to talk about it what if I say the wrong thing there are 
there has to be a certain comfort with risk, which I know is kind of somewhat based on some of my own research into kind of veterinary leadership that that um, the profession tends to be pretty risk averse. So, so I recognize that that's a really hard thing to do, but there has to be some willingness to accept some risk. Um, but I think that some of it is having to do your own work. Like, yeah, it, we know that, the, and, and I know, and I'm, I, I'm constantly learning the new lingo because it changes, the new vocabulary words change, they evolve. Um, but um, give yourself some grace. Um, maybe, you know, your first conversation is not on a stage. <laughs> like, <laughs> so, right? Maybe your first conversation is not on social media. <laughs> like, but really kind of um, finding those folks that you trust um, to be able to have these kinds of conversations, to be able to um, get a, um, a space, a brave space, right? It requires a brave space. And I've talked a lot about this in, in some of my work is that there's a difference between a safe space and a brave space. Um, safe spaces, for typically are for um, groups of individuals with shared identities and it is their space to just let the walls down. Yeah. Right? To let the walls down. Um, and that's the purpose of a safe space is to let the walls down, kind of be free. Brave spaces, which is I think what all of us should be aspiring to, um, because all of us may or may not need safe spaces, right? But brave spaces, um, that brave spaces means that you get some of that grace um, to be able to say things that you're not sure about, but you want to ask questions and you want, um, it's a little bit fearful, but again, you have to show some bravery because allyship requires some skin in the game. Yeah. Um, so, so like kind of trying to create brave spaces with people that you have some trust with um, and some folks that you think that will give you a bit of grace and won't go out and say, oh my God, this is what, you know, um, when that happens, when you see kind of cancel culture, it is because there is a lack of trust. It's because there's a lack of trust, lacks of trust. You have an infraction, you get a reaction, it becomes devastating. Right. And so um, there has to be um, um, a willingness to be brave um, and to, to start those kinds of conversations. And we recognize all the things that make it scary um, right now, especially in times like this, it seems especially scary. But um, I encourage people not to use euphemisms. Use your words. <laughs> So learn the vocabulary. Google is free, um, but really try to engage um, and be authentic and genuine about it. When people feel that authenticity, it is so much easier to give grace um, for things like answering questions, doing that emotional labor um, of answering questions, being present, being thoughtful and hearing folks say sometimes what might initially sound a little crazy, right? But, but um, you know, being authentic and genuine is, is, um, is also required in that, in, that brave, in that bravery. Yeah, it reminds me of, and I love Brene Brown, <laughs> a lot of yes. people do. Yeah, so her podcast, Unlocking Us, 
there's like two things that she says. Um, one is like, be brave, awkward, and kind. Um, and I like that. But she also says, it's not about being right. It's about getting it right. Yes. And I think that's something that we can all learn, you know, to have that a little bit of, of grace. Um, when, you know, you don't get it, you're not right right away, but eventually, you know, if you try to get it right and you stumble and then you learn and you keep being brave, um, it can be really rewarding and it can make shifts on a small level and hopefully a bigger level as well. Yeah, I love uh, Brene Brown's work. I think about it a lot. I try to infuse it in my own work a lot. Um, and it's also, you know, she talks a lot about shame and shame um, is, you know, one of those big barriers to folks having the kinds of conversations that I think we all need to be having about not just race, but all kinds of things, right? Um, our shame and not having the language or shame, um, our preemptive shame and, <laughs> and fear um, yeah. of what happens if I say the wrong thing, um, the shame of feeling like I should know this and I don't, the shame of uh, I had no idea that I might've been upholding the patriarchy, you know, all of those kinds of, of things. Um, but, you know, she talks about, and I, um, my favorite book of hers is Braving the Wilderness, and she talks about bravery um, in the face of, of these kinds of challenges, um, but she also talks a lot about grace. And, um, and that's also why I, I, believe in, I believe in grace, I believe in some restorative justice, Yes, I absolutely believe that there are some folks that just, we can just hang them out to dry. I'm, I'm not, <laughs> yeah. right? They've just, they've, yeah, we've, we've turned the cheek way too many times. I have no more cheeks. Goodbye. Um, but, you know, again, that genuineness, that authenticity and the bravery skin in the game piece um, allows people to demonstrate grace um, and allow for restorative justice so that folks can grow and get work on getting it right. Yeah. It almost seems too important to worry about how you'll come off. You know, if you mess up, it, it's more important to try. <laughs> it is. Well, I mean, it, you know, it's ego too. It's ego um, that, you know, you want to be, um, no one wants to say something that might make them look bad. Right. And, right. And so that can be really silencing. Ego is, is an important part of identity. Um, but it is in those moments when we kind of break through that and are willing, again, to demonstrate that bravery is where that's where growth happens. That's yeah. where growth happens. So I'd like to leave our listeners with your podcast. Um, so Tell us about that diversity inclusion on air, um, how it started, what are some of the topics and where people can find it. Sure, sure. So uh, the show is called Diversity and Inclusion on Air. Um, and I uh, started the podcast five years ago this fall. Um, it was a bit of a wild and crazy idea. I'm really, really fortunate to work uh, under the leadership of Dr. Andrew McCabe, our CEO. 
Um, he has, um, he shows me an enormous amount of grace when I have wild and crazy ideas. And I said, hey, I think I'm going to do this. I think a podcast on diversity in the profession might really, I think that could be a thing. Um, I'm going to do a few episodes and if it doesn't work out, then we'll just never talk about it again. I'll just pretend <laughs> that didn't happen. Yeah. Um, and, <laughs> but here we are five years later and uh, we have, I think, 76 or 77 episodes now. Um, we just hosted one this week on decolonizing wellness. Uh, the, the show explores diversity and inclusion topics as they relate to veterinary medicine. And um, we look at diversity very broadly. So there are, um, there are shows on what it's like to practice in Appalachia, right? There are shows on um, women, uh, there are shows on women who are in large or mixed animal practice as owners. There are shows on what it's like to be the only person of color in your veterinary class of 100 people, right? Um, and we also really do explore issues around intersectionality. So there are um, shows on um, folks who are like queer people of color. So you have, um, you know, folks that identify as queer, which is, you know, has its own kind of issues, societal issues that they are wrestling with just in that dimension, but they also, um, you know, have more melanin. And so that also comes with its own societal baggage, right? And, and how do those experiences, what is that experience like? Um, because those folks exist and they exist in veterinary medicine. And so, um, so we're able to bring uh, a lot of different kinds of folks onto the show to talk about all kinds of things. We talk, also talk about things like um, access to veterinary care in low-income or rural communities. What does that look like? And what are some of the challenges associated with it? So, so we have a lot of um, diverse topics within um, the show. Uh, and uh, you can find the show on most podcast apps. We are distributed by SoundCloud. So we have, that's where our home is, where you can also find um, specific playlists because we've created um, this summer, we repackaged some of our shows. And so there's like a diversity starter kit um, playlist that has a number of kind of, here are some big terms and this is what they mean and this is what it looks like. And this is, you know, these are things. We also have um, a pride playlist. We have a playlist on just on race and ethnicity in the profession. Um, we have, you know, just different kinds of collections where we um, on SoundCloud where we've kind of put together, um, you know, collections for curated collections for listening. Um, we also um, we broadcast the show live now. Um, we broadcast the show live on YouTube. I usually do a show um, every other week sometimes every week. This summer it's been, I've put out a lot of shows. I normally take the summer off <laughs> for producing the show, but there's just been so much happening that we've really just had, um, we wanted to um, um, continue to produce content during the summer to meet needs. Um, there were topics like Black Lives Matter in veterinary medicine, 
with some professionals really just talking about what their experience um, is like in the profession. Um, there are, um, I'll be doing a show on sexism in the profession um, sometime soon, kind of thinking about what does that look like? Because it's one thing to talk about, here's the data and these are some examples. No, what does that really look like? So that folks can kind of either see themselves on the, you know, and, and, ha and say, oh, there are, other, this is either happening to other people or, oops, I did that last Friday. I need to do some personal work. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> because I did not know that that was like patently offensive, right? And so, um, so it's been really a, a great way of providing content um, that hopefully is educational, but also um, you know somewhat enjoyable. Hopefully, it's a good listen too. Yeah. And how do you think the podcast? What do you think the impact of it has been? Um, so I think that it has been a, um, a, a passive way for folks to get uh, good info about these issues. Because again, if you're thinking about what allyship looks like and you know that there's requires this bravery piece, but you don't, you know, know all the lingo or how does this issue really play out, um, you know, the podcast gives you a really passive free way of tapping into some of that um, so that you can learn about some of those things. Um, over the last five years, you know, I'm constantly looking at our listening statistics and the viewing statistics. Um, and, you know, we see that people are looking for this kind of content. We see more people logging on to watch the show live. Um, and sometimes when the numbers seem low, when I kind of probe out to the schools, they're like, oh no, there were still like, there were like 20 people in a room watching the show. So it might've only shown as one viewer, but no, the, the impact has been bigger. The other thing is that um, the podcast, a number of the schools name, um, one of probably the, the one that is known the most is um, the Purdue uh, Center for Diversity and Inclusion um, in Veterinary Medicine has their certificate program um, for veterinarians, veterinary staff, and students, um, the podcast can be used to fulfill, um, you know, one of the requirements of that program. But there are other programs that the podcast has also been deemed appropriate to, to use as well. And so, you know, it's, it's been useful for some faculty to also make reference to it, to, to direct people to it for more information about all kinds of topics in a less kind of formal way. There's no PowerPoints, yeah. just none of that. It's just, you know, me and a person having a conversation. And so, you know, that recent episode with Dr. Dr. Jen Brandt, Jen and I are very, very good friends. And so it wasn't just a, hey, we are um, presenting how to do this very important thing, but it was really to friends having a conversation and hopefully modeling what it should look like. That was Dr. Lisa Greenhill discussing AAVMC's Diversity Matters Initiative and how the multi-pronged program promotes diversity among veterinary colleges and ultimately the profession as a whole. You can find her podcast, Diversity and Inclusion, on air on SoundCloud and YouTube. 
I will include the link to her podcast in the show notes. If you're enjoying this podcast, we would love to hear from you. Write a review on Apple Podcast. We set a goal of getting 30 reviews. We love reading them, and if you have a minute to spare, we would love to read yours too. I may give you a shout out on the next episode. Thank you for tuning in to Veterinary Vitals. I'm your host, Dina Goldstein from TVMA. TVMA.